Hello guys and welcome to another podcast episode. This is episode 9 and today we are here with Ben Strains. How you doing today, Ben? I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Um, just to let the viewers know at home, RJ cannot make it tonight. But today we are um, interviewing Ben from Ben's Trains. He's got a really cool post-war layout, and so we're gonna just going to ask him a couple questions about that today. So the first question, Ben, how did you get into it? Well, the very first time I was ever around a model train was with my grandfather on his layout when I was, I believe, three years old was the first time I uh, went to his up to his uh, train room. Uh, in his old house, and most of what's in my collection is stuff that was his, so it's obviously stuff that's quite old, it's been used a lot, but uh, still runs good for its age. I would agree with you, post-war does last a long time. Um, I could say that, I can make the argument personally myself that a lot of my post-war stuff has um, outperformed a lot of the um, NPC and uh, early modern stuff just because you know it was built to take apart and put back together, so you you've already you've obviously had a early exposure to model trains. So now that you've kind of um, you've been collecting for a while now, um, you why do you still go to post war? Well, for one, it's cheaper. It's generally fairly easy to find. Uh, Obviously, it's very reliable, and it's stuff that I already have a bunch of, so I find no reason to uh, need to change. It's even quite realistic for how old it is. Um, obviously, the track, tubular track, which I use on my layout, is clearly not the most realistic thing, but it's... I was talking to this about people before that you're not going to be looking at the track. It's the engines and the accessories, not the track. So I tend to find O gauges still considered the most realistic uh, of the model trains. Yeah. And I definitely think, you know, I've said this before multiple times, but the tubular track just works so well. Um, it was built to last, honestly. And um, that's why I have it on my layout. Um, I've always had problems with fast track. And I was just like, you know what, let's go back to the old stuff um, with the tubular, and it works like a charm. So, yeah, I... a, lot, oh, go ahead. a lot of things on, uh, quite a few pieces on my layout are either very early post-war or late pre-war track. Okay. Some of these, in, uh, right, those two right there, I know are from... Definitely a, a pre-war era, so because they're they're darker in color, yeah, and obviously a lot dirtier. No matter how much you clean them, they're just they have like dirt is like permanently caked under them, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, I have some post-war pieces as well that um, were from my grandfather's uh, his collection, and then I have some brand new, uh, you know, tubular track that I picked off off a of train world or Menards or whatnot. And the old stuff, like the the rusty track, just runs just as well. Um, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. But so kind of tell us about your layout. Um, so kind of what, what do you got going on on the layout? Okay, well, uh, so uh, a lot of it is mostly 
post-war Plasticville. There's a bridge that I made myself. Uh, there's an American flyer accessory. Two of them, actually. One's a crossing gate. The other's a switch tower. There's... You got a siding with its act, little activator track next to the Plasticville Freight Depot. There's the Illuminated Station that I won from the Ours Trains giveaway that Corey did on his channel. And uh, I went from two loops to three loops. Uh, two of them are O-Gage. The other two are... Or the other, the other one is O27. The other two are O-Gage. Um, obviously, as you said, you can't, you can't see any, anything, but, uh, I just picked up the 675K4. Yep, I saw that ago. video. Uh, that's on right here. There's the, my anniversary set. That was my grandfather's. I do have my first set on. But uh, the recent changes I've I've done with it are obviously, I think the the best and the most uh, kind of realistic. They're more involved. Uh, my the the main focused area, what I think is when you kind of look at my layout from a certain angle, everything kind of gets funneled to the water tower which is in the direct center of the layout and just to the left of that is this like sort of construction site area that's kind of surrounding the siding that's part of the main focus of my layout so a lot of people kind of know you as the wizard of post-war um why how, how how come you know so much like when i was watching your video on the new k4 and you were like uh this train has baldwin drivers like i don't i don't even know what that is so how do you know so much about a lot of these post-war items a lot of it comes either from other other youtube videos or from i have tons of those old lionel guides and uh that tells a lot of that information itself. But part of it is also from uh, other people's YouTube channels and watching the content that they put out about some similar stuff. Like uh, with the how the, the Baldwin drivers, they have a different like design on the wheels and they're, they have silver around them. Like the, uh, the chrome uh plates on the outer edges of the wheel okay that give it the make the wheels stand out rather than the later versions that just had the plain ones okay okay cool so um can i ask you a little bit about your um engine roster and kind of what you have going on there for the most part it's mostly diesel but I think I have I have a pretty good balance of steam and diesel, I'd say, and I personally would prefer, now obviously I like all engines post-war, but I would probably prefer the post-war diesels, uh, because they tend to pull slightly better than the steam engines, 
Uh, I believe that has something to do with the fact that their weight is concentrated lower rather than up high because, you know, the steam engines have, like, the die-cast shells, so they're more top-heavy. Um, whereas the diesels of plastic shells and the, the, at least for the earlier ones, have steel, uh, like, frames and chassis that are much heavier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, it's all post-war with the exception of three that are MPC modern era. The newest locomotive I have is from 2008, and then there's one from 1993, okay. and then one from the 70s. The rest is all post-war and pre-war, too. Okay. All right, so that's a pretty cool roster bin. Um, you got a, a nice, nice collection of post-war and pre-war items there. So you're on YouTube now. Um, you kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, now, obviously, the the whole reason I got into the whole YouTube thing is actually quite funny because it wasn't that I ever really wanted to be a YouTuber. I, it was actually when I first got my phone because I had a YouTube channel several years ago. And the problem was the phone that I had then did not seem to want to upload YouTube videos at all. Like, I think I recorded a total of like 19 videos, but only like three of them uploaded. Um, but then I, I got my new phone and I wanted to see if I could upload a video of me running a, a train. It was back when it was still on the carpet before I put it up on the layout. And it actually worked, so I figured, you know what? I've been wanting to to uh, kind of make a, 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 at least a somewhat successful YouTube channel rather than getting like four or five subscribers or however many I had last time. So I went ahead with just kind of uploading more and more videos uh, until I kind of got to where I am today. I definitely think you've made a lot of progress coming up. Um, I believe you were on the GFW stream as well. Yes. Yes. That's, I think, a month ago, then okay. half, two months Okay. at this point. Well, if uh, any any of the audience is interested, I will link Ben's channel in the description below. So go check him out if you love everything post-war. It's really cool. Um, so you um, you said when you started your YouTube channel, you you started on the carpet with uh, just a loop of track and a transformer. Um, so do you kind of want to talk about how you built your layout? Yeah, the well, the first layout that I ever had was actually just a few... It was these three plastic shelves that were like two feet high with a hollow door laid on it. And it was obviously a hollow door, so as you imagine, it was more noisy. Plus, on top of that, I used Fast Track, which was like the most annoying layout. Oh ever. my goodness, yeah, definitely. <laughs> with hollow doors under it. <laughs> um, plus, a bunch of the. I only had like three or four engines at that point and they were ones from my grandfather one was my first set and obviously at that time they hadn't been like serviced or lubricated or anything oh yeah so they're 
the engines themselves were super loud and noisy anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really loud layout. The layout I have now is four by eight. Okay. And the old one was three by seven about. Um, so it gained about two feet in size total. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's quieter. I put up ways to kind of lessen some of the vibrations and whatnot. How did you do but, that? Uh, this... Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but... Um... No, that's okay. Uh, this layout has... It's rubber ties, uh, rubber pieces under the ties, um, and foam pads kind of like uh, stapled up underneath to limit some of the vibrations. And the other things with this one is it's obviously a lot sturdier because it's plywood instead of a hollow door. Mm-hmm. And it's on top of bench work. So this layout, I actually, there's a, if you've seen my videos, there's a light hanging above the layout. Yep. And if I need to ever turn the light off, it'll turn off with the light switch. But if I ever like want the lights on, but the layout light off, it might not be the most convenient thing, but the best way to do it is to obviously get up on the table and turn it off. So this table is strong enough to support the weight of a person okay. on it. So it's a lot stronger than the old one. It's also a lot taller and bigger. And instead of one loop, it has gone up to three. Okay. I'm surprised you can fit three loops um, on a 4 by 8 I have 036 on the outer loop and 027 on the inner loop. And with scenery and everything, it's even a, it's a tight fit. So, But you you just have a lot of buildings, so, you know. And uh, you well, have... What I used with, with mine is 042 on the outer. Okay. Gives you more space in between two of the rails. And I used 031, and then it's 027. Okay. So it's... Okay. it's more limited on the inner loop, but it does fit, and there's a decent amount of space between the rails, so. Yeah, you even said you had, like, a passenger station and a yard, so, I mean, the, uh, the functionality there on that layout is still. Yeah, it's, it's pretty packed, but it's, it's a good amount for what the space is. Okay, okay. So, I'm gonna ask you kind of a, a fun question. If you had, if money wasn't a problem, and, you know, you could just get you know, any post-war engine tomorrow, what would it be and why? It would probably be the 773 Hudson from 1950. Okay. Because, I mean, it's a very kind of like iconic engine. Oh, definitely. And it's also one of, it's obviously the biggest Hudson. It's uh, the biggest steam engine made in the post-war era and definitely the most desirable other than probably like the 746. Okay. Which okay. is the big J-class one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think those those pieces that you brought up um, were very influential in Lionel's history just because with all that new detail and everything like that. Yeah. Well, because that's what people, they always talk about, um, saying how, like, Lionel's 
very expensive and mm-hmm. uh you know like other companies that are like the same thing but cheaper that are so much better which honestly if it weren't for lionel making locomotives like that 700e that they made in the pre-war era that was scale mm-hmm. and and all that and then they made the 773 it's just like a updated version of it yeah and there was like big engines like the gg1s the fm train masters and lionel even invented ho too like if it wasn't for post-war lionel inventing all that stuff and uh producing it and selling it as sets then lionel wouldn't have what it has today yep i would definitely agree there and I think another thing too, I was actually researching for a video that I'm working on. And so I actually found out, um, I think it's called the electronic control set. So Lionel made a, a a train set with, it came with a turbine and a couple freight cars and a caboose and some loop of track. And it included this electronic control set, which allowed you to um, uncouple um anywhere on the layout like you didn't have to have a piece or anything it was you could do it anywhere on the layout and i thought that was really cool and you know it did it wasn't really a huge hit for some reason but it was definitely um an advance in technology for that time as well yeah the post well, oh go ahead the uh one thing that i've heard people kind of talking about before is as to why Lionel won't make magnet traction anymore is because I mean for one it's harder to make steel rails because it's more expensive but mm-hmm. they say it's because the magnet traction can interfere with some of the uh the electronic systems interesting in the engines which is to me doesn't make as much sense because if they could do it in the 50s with like the old timey technology, they should be able to come up with a way to make it effective now. Yeah. Uh. But it's it's kind of like uh. Well, we were we were talking about this on the Discord the other day, actually. Like how, ever since, like when the original Lionel company closed in nineteen sixty nine, mm-hmm. that like Lionel has like never been the same since, and they've always just done things differently for one reason or the other and they never decided to like go back to that old style of trains that made them famous in the first place interesting i haven't really heard that could you go into that more uh it was the the magnet traction well it was a a thing that like apparently the the magnet traction for for whatever reason that uh, it's it's kind of just a rumor that I heard on from various places um, where people say like Lionel doesn't want to because like it's it's more expensive to make steel track and uh, they don't want to like it's obviously you gotta buy all the magnets and stuff mm-hmm. and obviously engines now are way bigger than they were oh before. yeah definitely so it's going to take more magnets to make it as effective. And uh, with, with like, the, the electronics, like the circuit boards and, and such inside of them, it's, it's going to be uh, the magnets supposedly interfere with those circuit boards to, uh, for some reason. 
but most most people just say that's that's a lie because if they could do it in the 50s which obviously i know like they didn't have like the circuit board and stuff in them but if they could if they could pull it off then it won't mess with like the whistle and the motor no yeah then the, the modern companies should be able to come up with something to some degree to kind of bring back the the magnet traction yeah um Maybe you could invent that, Ben. You could experiment and try some things out yourself and see if you could get anywhere. But um, you know, it would be definitely it would be definitely very hard to fit uh, magnet traction or something to that degree in like a big boy or something like that per se. It also, I I believe it must have something to do with uh, some of the the ways that um, the the newer trains are kind of like they're they're built a lot differently like you take apart an alco from like 1952 yep. and then you take one apart like mine for example from like 1993 and there's they're entirely different on the inside oh yeah the one from 1993 even though it's a more heavy duty locomotive per se it's it's based a lot like the um the cheaper Alcos, like the Texas Specials, mm-hmm. for example, because um, it just kind of goes to show like how how cheap it is that they're making things uh, nowadays. Because yeah. the nicer engines are more like the cheap ones from the post-war era, mm-hmm. and it's you could kind of see why it would be a bit tougher to incorporate magnet traction with. The way that the new engines are kind of designed and built. Mm-hmm. You were kind of talking about, you know, fitting magnet traction in these trains and stuff like that. Why do do even the new engines pique your interest at all? For the most part, no. Interesting. None of the larger like scale engines, uh, really kind of like none of them catch my eye. It's some of the MPC era ones, like, you know, like there's the Crescent Limited, the the Southern Pacific Daylight. Yep. The uh the Blue Comet. Mm-hmm. Th- those kinds like like that. But none of the like I don't I don't like walk into a train store and see a say like a scale like cab forward or something and be like, Oh, that's something I gotta have. It I don't I tend to stay away from the more modern ones, and I, I said this earlier too, that like, because the modern ones are much more expensive and much less of a toy. Yeah. Because uh, honestly, the whole reason I'm in the hobby is not really because I'm trying to make something realistic. It's because you're you're essentially just playing with trains is, is what you're doing when you have post-war stuff and you have a layout like mine. You're essentially just collecting them to play with the with the trains initially and uh whereas like with the new ones they they don't make like the the same kinds of like accessories and and whatnot like they used to Mm -hmm. like the the best you get is probably like those conventional classic sets yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the reasons when I started collecting, I got a 
ready to run Hogwarts Express starter set. But, I mean, like I've said before in previous podcasts, you know, I I was initially exposed to trains from my um, grandfather's co- collection. Um, we had some that we would get out during Christmas, and we'd run them. And they'd be like, you know, kind of like you said, um, like the Southern Pacific Daylight NPC era. Some, some kind of engine like that, something similar, and stuff like that. And so I was exposed to a lot of the conventional tubular track, um, forward and reverse, whistle and bell, and that was about it. And when I started collecting, that's what I'd go for. Um, a lot of my, like, for example, my second engine I ever bought was a MPC era, I think it's a GP7 New York Central. Um, it literally goes forward and backwards, and it has a horn. But to me, when I started collecting, that was like, that was like the coolest thing ever. Um, and now that I've kind of, um, experimented a little bit you know with lion chief and that um, newer control i mean i still really enjoy just throwing on the transformer and watching my turbine go in loops for hours um i mean i do like the new stuff i definitely think it's cool but i definitely see where you're coming from with the aspect of um you know it's just a toy and and at the end of the day you need to run it um i definitely see where you're coming from there but i mean as I said in the live stream, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that Legacy 460. I've never really had a Legacy engine or anything that super fancy at all. But I definitely get where you're coming from with the um, the the cheaper... I don't want to use cheaper as like a degrading term, but like less expensive engines that um, still look good and still run really well. And that'll last longer because... Yeah. Mean- we always say, like, the poster ones will probably still last longer than the modern ones, but mm-hmm. honestly, you never know. They might last a good 20 years or so, but, I mean, you got to think, most of the poster ones, even those, like, plastic-motored scout engines that are known for being, like, the worst yeah. engines ever uh-huh. still run to this day, so yep. just no one knows how long the, the new stuff will last. I think we usually just say that because a lot of people that have them usually have problems with them after a few years. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah some people have better luck than others. Yeah. I think that's part, of, that's part of the hobby, too. You know, some people have better luck than others. But with that scout you were saying before, when I started collecting, um, I wanted to learn how to take apart an engine. And so I was like, what's the, you know, what's the cheapest train? that I could find. And so a lot, a lot, I found a lot of results and a lot of those were scout engines, but a lot of people were saying, don't get those because they're so cheap. Um, so I ended up getting a NPC era four, four, two locomotive. Um, I took it apart, cleaned it, put it back together. She ran like new. I still need to work on the whistle. um in the tender, but she runs. Yeah, that's, um, the first engine I ever really f- fixed up was the, the the pre-war juniors that I have. Okay. Uh, that was the first engine that I ever, like, technically rebuilt. All I really did was bypass the E-unit and replace the, uh, the brush contactors because it needed those, like, severely to be replaced. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, it was the Lionel Juniors. And those were made in the Great Depression, so... Okay. Uh, 
obviously they're not meant to great, but it was what you got back then, so. Yeah, and definitely in times like those, you couldn't ask for anything better, you know? Yeah, you'd be lucky to have one that was like, oh, you got it, like, right before or something. If you got a nicer set, you could have those ones or something. Mm -hmm. But some people, that was their starter set, and they had to deal with it on their own. Yeah. They, a lot of those sets sold for, like, well, like, $3. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Back in 1930s, which is, like, only, like, $15 today, so still cheap. Yeah. Um, to me, personally, it's crazy to see... Lionel, you know, survived the Great Depression, uh, you know, World War II. They had, uh, they had to buy Ives to do it, actually. They bought Ives during the Great Depression, which helped sustain their company. Yep. And then mm -hmm. they bought American Flyer during World War II. Okay. They, so they, I mean, they survived. They, they, during World War II, I believe, it was actually Lionel actually made stuff for the military. Like, they yep. sent their their stuff to the military um in the great depression they just kind of bought ives and they did their best to keep themselves open mm -hmm. but i think when lionel bought ives ives pretty much just decided to close because there was no way they'd be able to like would they be they were in lionel's shadow pretty much there's no way they'd be able to keep up with them yeah because mm -hmm. uh, then you got to like 1950 which I learned about this and it was made me laugh that in 1950 it was either 1950 or 1940 I think that Lionel was making so much money um, but with all that money they were making they had to put it back into making train sets and the catalog that they released that year had to be in black and white because they, they were literally spending all their money to make sets because so many people wanted them that they couldn't afford to color the catalogs. So they just had to make the catalogs black and white. Interesting. I, I've never heard that before or heard that aspect of it. Um, but again, you know, I think those catalogs were definitely a crucial piece and Lionel advertising, um, a lot of those pictures are still seen today and uh, still strike the hearts of a lot of um, collectors who uh, lived during that time frame. I understand, actually, um, a lot of the newer Lionel catalogs, if you really kind of look at them, they're actually kind of based off the old catalogs. Like some of the, 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 the poster pictures and stuff that are like on the front of them are very similar. Some are, yeah. like, identical to the old ones. They just, like, replace it with a modern engine instead yep. of it being, like, an old, like, whatever, like, 464 Hudson. It's the it's a Union Pacific big boy instead yeah. or something like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely post-war Lionel has a lot of history behind it. Um, you know, from the Great Depression, World War II, even the Korean War, um, and kind of stuff like that. So... Lionel has a very interesting history, but they're still with us today, and they're still making trains for us. So, all right, Ben. Well, um, thank you for coming on today. All right. Well, uh, hey, thank thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hey, yeah, it. not a problem, dude. Um, always happy to talk about model trains. <laughs> all right, I would love to talk post war with you all day. Uh, it's a blast. 
Um, so before we end things here, um, if you guys haven't already, go ahead. I will post uh, Ben's channel in the description below. You guys got to go check it out. He's got a an amazing uh, post-war collection. Um, ben, do you have any closing thoughts for the audience today? No, not really, other than if if you're going for a model train, definitely pick O-Gage. It might be expensive, but it's definitely worth it. Even the new stuff that some might consider overpriced, it's, it's definitely worth it. O-Gage is worth it. You get what you pay for. I definitely feel like O-Gage is like the perfect size. Yeah, well, it's, it's easy for kids and adults. Mm-hmm, yep. Agreed. All right, Ben. Well, thank you for coming on today. Again, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, well, no, hey, no problem. Yep. This has been the episode nine of the Model Train Talk podcast. Um, go in the description below to check out Ben's channel, and we will see you guys in the next episode.